0: Welcome back to the Misdiagnosed Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Pyle. I think this is episode 26 or 27 of the the show. Really exciting stuff. Last week, we finished chapter seven of the book, having skipped chapter six, but we did summarize it. Chapter eight is about addiction, and that's what we're going to start on today. Maybe there's something in my brain that wanted to procrastinate recording this episode or recording an episode in general, just because when somewhat hits close to home, I think in a way it hits close to home for everybody, even if they don't know it yet. Because when we think about it, addiction, we tend to think about the opioid epidemic, or street drugs, alcohol, people calling hotlines and going to rehab and getting into programs to get sober. We envision someone who's financially exhausted because of their addiction we see the turmoil that addiction can cause in our lives and in the people who love us. There's plenty of theories that are out there about what causes addiction. Maybe hardship from a young age, mistakes, peer pressure, bad influences, but genes are now entering the picture too. And one thing to keep in mind when you hear the gene blame game starting is you got to be skeptical because genetic theories are usually backed with very poor studies and they tend to be an easy out to make it seem like it's our fault for being the way that we are. Same thing with what we've talked about before, you know, bipolar disorder is said to be genetic. And some of the videos I've posted on TikTok about bipolar being genetic, one of them has actually been taken down because it's against community guidelines, most likely because people who believe it's genetic reported it because they, I guess, like to be blamed (laughs) for their own disease. Don't get me wrong, the symptoms of bipolar disorder are very real, and they have a cause, but your genes are not the cause. Things that cause bipolar disorder can be passed down through the bloodstream, through sperm and egg even, but they're not in your genes. Your genes are not causing your brain to have reactions. They're not. That is a lie it is a theory that is used to make you a prisoner to the system because it imprisons you with a belief that your genes are against you and that in order to correct this chronic imbalance that you have in your brain because of your poor sad genes you have to take a pill right and that's a lie And it's the same with addiction. Addiction is an unproven theory, and that's critical to know because these gene theories can make it feel like addiction is inevitable or unfixable, very much like other mental disorders, right? And make us feel like fighting to make ourselves free is a losing battle because what we're struggling with is somehow written into our DNA, and that's just not true. Addiction is deeper than all of that, and it's also more widespread. It's a lot more vast than just fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, pills, and cigarettes. We all have an addictive nature deep inside of us. And even if there is people out there who think they're completely immune to addictive behavior, you're probably in denial. So we're not just talking solely about alcohol and drugs. Addiction can run through all avenues of life and lifestyle. Just like you hear people say, we all have our vices. That's very, very true. Addiction can be very basic as being habitually fixated on a favorite food. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the show Freaky Eaters or My Strange Addiction when they were on back in the day. I think you could still watch the episodes online, but some people would eat nothing but cheesy potatoes or mothballs (laughs) or cat food. I have had acquaintances in the past who would eat nothing but white rice, bread, cheese. So they would order pizza with just cheese. And no sauce. It's just the wildest thing. People could be addicted in that way. You could be even addicted to acting like someone you're not. You could be addicted to your devices. I feel like I'm addicted to TikTok right now and I'm not going to go on TikTok all day today. I'm just saying it. It's Wednesday as I'm recording this, even though I post episodes on Friday to give myself a few days to edit. It is Wednesday and I am not going on TikTok today. I said it. I haven't been posting that often either. I want to post more. But I'm just not sure what I want to do with the channel. We'll see. Because once I start living in my van, I want to start doing vlogs on there about van life and why I left the corporate world or an entrepreneurship as well. Like I just, traditional entrepreneurship, that hustle culture, why I don't want to be part of that anymore. So who knows? And I'm still healing, you know? So we could be addicted to tv we could be addicted to driving or confrontation or expressing toxic opinions on the internet (laughs) people can be addicted to exercise addicted to shopping zip lining adrenaline type stuff like hang gliding bungee jumping they can get addicted to that people are addicted to coffee too of course you could be addicted to staying up late staying up all night and make up excuses like the world's quiet so you can get a lot done you can be addicted to collecting pets antiques anything you can collect because you feel like your collection's never complete you can be addicted to organizing to the point where it's like an ocd level yeah and in the book anthony even talks about the caffeine addiction on top of caffeine and coffee there's also black tea and kombucha tea there's caffeine and chocolate cacao which i this morning since i didn't sleep as well as i would have liked to last night i was thinking mm, maybe i should just have some cacao but i didn't i got up and i had some juice and some millet porridge that i'd made in the instant pot earlier this week And a turmeric shot, I took all my vitamins and tinctures, and now I don't feel tired. So I don't think I need caffeine or even anything remotely like it. There's a lot of people out there where caffeine controls their lives, even though they might not realize it. I listened to a podcast about van life, and the podcaster. I love listening to the show. The podcaster talks about how she has social anxiety a lot, but then she drinks a ton of coffee, and I'm just like, I wonder if that social anxiety is exacerbated, like you feel it in your body more because you have all this adrenaline in your body that kind of fools your body and your mind into thinking that you're anxious when you're maybe not. Caffeine has been shown in many instances to fuel anxiety. That's one of the reasons why I threw it out and got it out of my life. But the thing is, caffeine is such an accepted, normal addiction that no one's ever supposed to question it, <laughs> even though it can really create a lot of problems for people. People talk about it jokingly, like, you know, I can't do anything until I have my morning cup of coffee. But what we don't often hear is the truth, and that is that caffeine is a psychoactive drug. There's, of course, other serious addictions like sex addiction or gambling, driving too fast. You can be addicted to scented candles, air freshener, perfumes, colognes. These types of synthetic fragrances are very bad for our health. They're engineered by chemical companies, so they become addictive in order that we might not be able to break the urge to keep buying them. And then they keep contaminating our personal world and our world around us. Not all addictions are bad. There's positive ones too. You could be addicted to getting a full night's sleep, which is really what I want to be doing. I want to be addicted to good things. So I'm glad I'm doing this chapter today because I feel like there's some room for improvement. Like I want to go to bed at 10 and get up at 6 like and want to get up, right? Not go to bed at 11.30 and I'm up at 8.30 or 7.30. No. And I've been spending way too much time on TikTok. Just full disclosure, yesterday... I spent like at least five hours watching TikTok. And I mean, I learned stuff. I always say that, but I feel like that in the end, it becomes an excuse because it's still time that I could have been spending reading, journaling, walking, getting some more movement in, right? And then I have the nerve to like, look at the cellulite I have on my belly right now, which I have not really ever dealt with and wondering why. Now, granted, I have to give myself some credit and that I have been straightening out hormonal imbalance for the last year. And that does take time. I didn't get that way overnight. It doesn't get better overnight either. So it takes time. But what I need to look at is what things am I doing that are contributing to that problem? You know, even if it's something seemingly innocent, like how much dried mango I eat after dinner, right? (laughs) I measured what a serving is and a serving is a half a cup, 140 calories. That's almost nothing. It's almost nothing. And there were times before I started measuring where I would eat like two or three handfuls of that stuff, but that could add up to easily 600 calories, which is a whole meal's worth of mango. So it's a quest to become more mindful and truly when my mind's energy is outsourced, like it is when I'm watching TikTok for five hours or even an hour, right? My mind is Outsourced. The energy of my mind is outsourced. Outsourced, I should say. I could be floating every night. At this point, I've been averaging one hour a week floating. This week, I've done one hour so far. I did my hair today, but <laughs> and I have an event tonight that I'm hosting here at the house, so floating's probably out for that night. But self-care is something I need to really focus more on, and it kind of goes out the window when I'm on TikTok, you know. Like, I'm not there, I'm not present to my own life when I'm paying attention to other people's lives and whether. and it causes anxiety, it really does, like, it really, really does. There's somebody on there always saying that the sky is falling in one way or another. And I'm looking around, and the sky is blue, where I am in my little office slash bedroom right now. It's breezy, the sky is blue, there are some clouds, it's not raining, I could probably get out there and take a walk today, but I'm wearing jeans, so I'm going to have to take my jeans off, put on some shorts instead. Anyway... I need some healthier addictions is the whole point. Just being real with you guys. It's an ongoing journey. It's not a battle. It's a journey. And being present to that journey and finding joy in that journey is my goal. Yeah. So there's a story behind addiction. and It used to be that addiction was considered a person's problem with a substance itself. Right? So illegal substances were most recognized as sources of addiction. Things like cocaine, heroin, even marijuana at one point. After that, overuse of legal prescriptions like painkillers was recognized as a type of addiction as well. And in many cases, people ended up in this position because they were in pain and the medical industry, which doesn't understand chronic illness, as we know, dealt out the opioids. It wasn't the doctor's fault, even though they were often blamed. It was the pharmaceutical company's fault. I think they knew that it was addictive they know that psych meds are addictive too. It took a long time in human history for us to identify alcohol as an addiction. Yeah, we still don't even want to go there. (laughs) If you're a drinker, it doesn't mean someone's going to consider it an addiction. It often takes a person getting numerous DUIs, waking up on a street (laughs) bench, like drowning in their own vomit, or ending up in the emergency room a few times before someone will maybe say to them, hey, you might be addicted to alcohol. Alcohol is quite coveted in our world today that it's almost immune to blame until that connecting line between bad things happening in our lives and alcohol becomes very, very obvious. That's why it usually takes someone destroying their life or someone else's life with alcohol to end up in a 12-step program, for example. So we reserve the addict and the alcoholic labels for those extreme situations. And everyone else tries to get away with masking their addiction by saying they only drink socially or only with friends or only on weekends or only one glass a night. Meanwhile, it's all addiction when it comes to alcohol because of how alcohol interacts with our system. There's going to be an upcoming episode all about alcohol, probably in the next month or two. Alcohol is a prime example of how less obvious addictions become protected by these societal norms that we've become so used to. And we've always wanted to separate ourselves from the idea of addiction because it's kind of shameful. And historically, blame usually fell on the person who's struggling with the addiction for having no willpower or they are weak-minded, they have some kind of mental flaw or no inner strength, things like that. Compassion was absent from the conversation, very conspicuously so. Willpower is still very much part of the conversation, though. People will look at someone struggling with drug abuse, alcohol abuse, gambling, shopping addiction, and think, well, how are we going to change this person? There's obviously a weakness here. Those who struggle with addiction are often considered insensible or out of touch with reality and sometimes addiction is even blamed on stupidity. It's simply not true though. People who get caught up in addiction are not weak or stupid. Intelligent people get caught up in addiction all the time. And the truth is, everybody is actually intelligent. And lately, addiction has been called a disease and that actually gets closer to the truth which is that something's happening inside the brain that explains why bringing a substance into the body or engaging in any certain activity would set off a dependence. That brain reaction explains why someone is reaching for caffeine or weed or opiates or other addictive substance or whatever activity in the first place. Nobody knows the full truth about what's going on in the brain to make that addiction happen. Naming it a disease doesn't mean it's understood. It's only gotten that status because of its recurring nature. We've been able to observe a person go back to the same addiction over and over again very destructively if an addiction is destructive enough on an obvious level and it's an addiction that most of the world doesn't partake in at that level then we deem it a disease and this is why alcohol is borderline because such a vast proportion of the population partakes in it again it takes a person who is destroying their life with alcohol to consider calling it the disease of addiction calling it alcoholism because everyone's drinking not everyone's doing cocaine hair acid or other street drugs, not everyone's on psychedelic mushrooms. And with addictive substances like those, a smaller percentage of people are engaging with them so we can more clearly observe someone getting into that cycle of addiction. We see the desire to go back to those drugs even after they go through withdrawal and they survive and they sober up that's when we can determine that it must be a disease. With some substances, there isn't that gray area with someone just doing a little bit of heroin each weekend. (laughs) There isn't a socially accepted ritual of a glass of heroin every night, the way you may see someone drink a glass of wine each night. A drug like heroin can spiral pretty quickly into a destructive place that makes it a clear addiction. So even though alcohol is milder, it can still be abused, and that abuse can become severe. And there's also a gray area before that point. You can have a glass of wine every night and not call that a disease because alcohol is socially accepted and protected. Almost the entire population drinks and we don't want to think that's a problem. Only when someone's on their 10th DUI or they've injured someone while driving after drinking or they have been abusive toward family members when they're drinking or they have lost family or friends because of their alcoholism. And then finally goes to rehab they get sober their life's back in order and then they end up on a park bench again with a bottle of wine and a brown paper bag only in this small percentage of the population are we ready to deem it a disease it's taken a lot of attention to even get here to this point where we'll call that a disease instead of a lack of willpower or some kind of moral failure but what really causes addiction Well, Anthony says that there's four main types of causes that can create a susceptibility to addiction, and that's toxic heavy metals, which we talked about a lot on the show. And there's other brain betrayers that can contribute along with those toxic heavy metals. We talked about deficiencies in the brain in the episodes on burnout, specifically glucose, glycogen, and trace mineral salts. Then there's emotional injury, and that could be either early in life or later and then caffeine exposure whether you were in the womb or maybe as a baby toddler or a child i can remember the first time i had mountain dew i was up all night (laughs) i was up all night and it was like probably not even a whole can or maybe it was just one can right i could not sleep and i was like this is no i don't want this anymore (laughs) but it tasted so good right to this day mountain dew tastes so good but that's the way it's supposed to be like they want it to be addictive Yeah, so toxic heavy metals and other brain betrayers, deficiencies in the brain, emotional injury, and early caffeine exposure can create a susceptibility to addiction. A person can experience maybe just one of these or any combination of them. Toxic metals in the brain, for example, can create addiction all on their own, even for someone who grew up in a nurturing home with every resource known to man, right? Or someone could be dealing with toxic heavy metals in the brain at the same time they're dealing with other brain betrayers or nutrient deficiencies or emotional injury, a trauma of some sort, creating that person's unique experience of addiction. I mean, I got really addicted to weed after my divorce, like before and after my divorce. I didn't start smoking it until I was like watching my husband go and try to find dates with other women. And I was like out on the scene again. We were trying to have an open marriage. <laughs> it was traumatizing and I didn't know it. I didn't know that's what it was. But when he first suggested it to me, I was like, I need some time. And it took probably three weeks to think about it. <laughs> and the toxic heavy metals play a very large role in substance abuse and other risky addiction. And it's worth noting that those four causes that we mentioned are the main causes of addiction. That is the causes responsible for the majority of people's addictions, those four things. Early drug exposure and early alcohol exposure can also lead to addiction. So even minimal alcohol consumption during pregnancy and breastfeeding can set the stage for addictions. But because there is awareness around the risks inherent in drug and alcohol use while pregnant and breastfeeding, it's a less common cause of addiction. Caffeine use, on the other hand, and that includes coffee, chocolate, green tea, very, very common everyday occurrence among people who are pregnant or breastfeeding. We also give kids chocolate on a regular basis, or raise your hand if that was true. I ate a lot of chocolate when I was a kid. A lot of candy when I was a kid, period. And that's why early caffeine exposure gets the attention here along with other three main causes because they're common. The common thread that connects these causes of addiction, the toxic heavy metals and other brain materials, deficiencies, emotional injury, and the caffeine exposure, or even early drug and alcohol exposure The common thread is shared by everyone no matter what combination of causes no matter what type of addiction no matter how big of an addiction it is and that common thread is adrenaline so we see that topic come up again and again on these episodes how adrenaline is supposed to be a good thing supposed to help us when we're in really stressful events in our lives that are not supposed to happen all the time but they become so normal so many of us are just in fight or flight all the time because of the stress that's created in our everyday lives but in addiction, the role of adrenaline is central to understanding it. So when we're addicted to a substance or an activity, we're essentially addicted to the adrenaline it triggers. And how that works, we are about to find out. Nearly everyone walking around on Earth has toxic heavy metals in the brain. We talked about in the show before. It's true. Everybody has it. I mean, they're spraying it in the atmosphere. It's in vaccines. Like, we know this. So... Some people's toxic heavy metal load might be a little, whereas some is more extreme. And this is what happens. When adrenaline saturates our brain tissue, it's almost like an antidote to those toxic levels of metal. Because the adrenaline is like a temporary patch and it allows the electrical signals to travel in and around the metals more easily. Adrenaline acts as a temporary anti-inflammatory for any areas of brain tissue where toxic heavy metals are causing mild inflammation. So this is why people think weed is helpful. This is why people think drugs are helpful <laughs> because they're a temporary mask. And that's why they think psych meds are helpful because they don't take care of the underlying problems in the brain like toxic heavy metals. They cover them up. So when a substance or activity triggers an adrenaline surge, that gives us this feeling of relief, right, from those toxic heavy metals that are in our brain. And then we want to keep going back for that relief in the form of whatever substance or activity triggered the adrenaline. So you'll go back to the weed, you'll go back to the alcohol because it puts this band-aid, this temporary relief on the toxic heavy metals in the brain that adrenaline is literally just like a band-aid. It allows your brain to temporarily work better. And so we're fooled into thinking that it's helping us. And we can't forget toxic heavy metals are not the only toxins in our brain. Somebody's brain could be super toxic with other brain betrayers. So on top of the toxic heavy metals, there could be multiple chemical poisons and acids, plastics, radiation, all kinds of things circulating in the brain and inhabiting, literally inhabiting our brain tissue. MSG deposits, toxic calcium deposits, salt deposits, all those things create crystallizations in the brain that act as obstructions to electrical pathways in the brain. Adrenaline can feel like relief, sweet relief from any kind of toxic overload in the brain. Adrenaline offers that antidote effect by patching over electrical impediments, right? So just like with toxic heavy metals, adrenaline is a band-aid over any electrical impediments and it can temporarily reduce the mild brain inflammation that's resulting from the toxic overload. Yeah, and so toxic overload, that's how it creates a susceptibility to addiction. The fewer toxins in the brain, the less susceptible you are to addiction. Now, there's more obvious addiction sources that trigger adrenaline surges. Now, there are more obvious addiction sources that trigger adrenaline surges, and there are less obvious sources that trigger adrenaline surges. Now, some people fall into substance abuse, for example, like I did, whereas others develop an addiction to heated arguments and confrontations that put them within arm's length of danger and get really pumped up with adrenaline. (laughs) And many people, without even knowing it, use exercise to treat mild brain inflammation or mild anxiety or depression caused by toxic heavy metals. The adrenaline produced by the exercise will provide a temporary feeling of relief. This is how exercise addictions can develop. It's all about getting that adrenaline to self-medicate right some people have severe health conditions that prevent them from exercising much so they can't use exercise adrenaline surges to manage the effects of the toxic heavy metals that are in their brains and even though those people who are physically capable of exercise find that it's self-limiting We can't exercise every minute of the day and night to hold back our anxiety and depression. And people often resort to caffeine instead as an adrenaline-producing treatment, whether they realize it or not. Most people don't realize that caffeine is producing adrenaline in their body, and that's why it feels good. They think it's because it has beneficial health effects and antioxidants and all the things that marketers will tell us that make us believe coffee is good for us. Sometimes people even consume caffeine before their workouts or during the workouts. That was me. I would drink these pre-workouts that had mate and guarana and other quote-unquote healthy types of caffeine in them before I'd work out. And because I'd be feeling so good, I was thinking, oh, you know, exercise feels so good. You know, it was actually the caffeine, the adrenaline doing it to me. That's why Adderall feels good. It releases adrenaline. Where do you think the ad comes from? In Adderall, adrenaline. So... No matter what substance or activity we're using, what we don't realize is that we're using the substance as a tool to trigger adrenaline, literally triggering a high for momentary relief from toxic heavy metals and everyday toxins in our brains. Yeah. And as we've learned already, when our brain is deficient in critical supplies, that's a problem, right? We have another reason then at that point to seek relief from adrenaline to help us power through our deficiencies that we're not even aware we have most of the time, right? I didn't have any clue that I was deficient in anything in my brain. Not a clue. I was just in the dark as most of us are. And unfortunately, shortages of critical supplies in the brain are the norm with our diet today and types of things that we're exposed to on a daily basis, things that we often can't even avoid, right? living day in and day out with these types of deficiencies from glucose, glycogen, trace mineral salts in our brain, not to mention amino acid deficiency and brain hormone deficiency, all that takes its toll. We're not taught to maintain our glucose levels and store up glycogen. We're not taught to feed our neurotransmitters with trace mineral salts from sources like celery juice and leafy greens. Instead, we're so often presented with a high fat, high protein diet, like it's normal and that means we unknowingly look for adrenaline to fill in for the lack of desperately needed supplies in our brain so it's no surprise then that brain deficiencies can create a susceptibility to addictive impulses as we reach for substances and activities to provide those adrenaline surges to cover up for the things that were missing in our brains By the way, Anthony says, a high-fat diet is an addiction itself. Every time we consume fat, our adrenal glands release an adrenaline blend to give our heart strength to tackle thick blood from the fat. Adrenaline is also a blood thinner. This adrenaline release is why eating fat gives us a quick feel-good moment. Oh, my gosh. I needed to hear that because it's hard to keep fat on my diet. It's really, really hard. And I tell myself, like, oh, I've been low-fat for a long time. I can have some you know, coconut milk in my oatmeal or whatever. And it probably doesn't make that much of a difference, but over time it can add up and work against us. Fat is really addictive and the real cause of people getting addicted to sugar. And we're going to get into this later in, probably not this episode, but the next episode. Yeah, next episode we're going to talk about sugar addiction. Really exciting. And more stuff about genes. But first we're going to talk about emotional injury and adrenaline. We've talked a lot about that on the show so far. So bring it full circle on how that relates to addiction. So when somebody experiences emotional trauma, and my thoughts always go back to that time period preceding and immediately after my divorce, those types of things can lead to obstructions in the emotional centers of the brain in the form of scar tissue. It can stagnate our blood vessels, inflame the blood vessels, harden the tissue, Brain tissue can even start to recede from the inside out in small pockets. Any of these impediments and obstacles can lead to a continual need for adrenaline to bring relief as a temporary patch over the impediments and obstacles, which makes so much sense why I was just vaping cannabis like a freaking smokestack. (laughs) I had no idea. And there's other factors that can heighten our craving for adrenaline an example is someone could have a high electrical output in the brain from constant emotional demands and stress like from a busy company <laughs> and that can lead to extreme electrical grid heat coupled with a combination of brain tissue saturated with acid an acidic bloodstream acidic spinal fluid Someone could have a little bit of brain inflammation in an area of the brain called an emotional center. And any of these factors can make symptoms even more intense and make the need for adrenaline feel all the more urgent. You gotta have it, right? Adrenaline sometimes also has a soothing effect. It can be an anti- anti-inflammatory. If the emotional centers of our brain are callous from that intense electrical heat of emotional challenges or constant ups and downs, adrenaline is called in as a quick treatment and we feel temporary relief from that. But we can become addicted to that adrenaline because it's soothing to our callous brain tissue, basically treating our inflammation in the brain. In turn, we can become addicted to the sources that trigger that adrenaline, like caffeine, alcohol, chocolate, sex, confrontation, fat, cannabis, all of it. (laughs) Yeah, speaking of caffeine, early exposure to caffeine, as mentioned before, is a very hidden cause of addiction that can occur even without these other causes that we've talked about on this episode so far. We train our kids to eat chocolate, which is a form of caffeine. And if someone who's pregnant or breastfeeding is consuming chocolate, coffee, coffee drinks, green tea, black tea, cacao, kombucha, that creates caffeine exposure for the baby. When babies, toddlers, children become addicted to caffeine because of these sources of early exposure, it can set the stage for all other addictions later in life. My mom never drank coffee, and I really think that's the reason why I don't drink coffee. My mom never drank coffee. I just think it's gross. I don't I, mean, I don't mind the smell, but the taste, I just don't understand why some people love it. But it probably has everything to do with the fact that my mom didn't drink it. But caffeine addiction is adrenaline addiction. We get hooked on caffeine. We're hooked on the adrenaline release that it triggers. And the same is true for addictions to other types of drugs as well as alcohol. They are adrenaline addictions the caffeine industry wants us addicted at a young age even before birth that's why chocolate is so acceptable pregnant women are now drinking green tea because they're told it has health benefits meanwhile the baby goes through withdrawal every day in the womb and this sets the stage for a lifetime of addictions when the baby is born if the mom is breastfeeding caffeine in the breast milk can also create a situation where the baby doesn't sleep well at night I feel like it's pretty common knowledge maybe i'm wrong but i feel like it's pretty common knowledge to not drink caffeine when you're breastfeeding but maybe people do anyway yeah and if a pregnant woman is under stress like serious stress maybe they've lost a loved one it can create adrenaline surges too and the baby will be affected by that saturated in adrenaline and then have these withdrawal symptoms from the adrenaline once that surge subsides this is another form of early addictive exposure when a baby goes through a roller coaster ride of adrenaline during pregnancy and the same is true when a kid is going through a traumatic situation in early life like maybe they're getting bullied on the playground or maybe they're experiencing abuse that triggers intense adrenaline surges it's a very formative time of our brain's development which can set this susceptibility to more adrenaline seeking and addiction into motion it just sets it all up become a big problem it's good to keep this kind of stuff in mind for sure so if you know your baby or child or my baby future baby maybe (laughs) my future maybe baby (laughs) experiences these type of exposures i can focus on you know improving nutrition and removing brain betrayer type things keep them away from that as much as i can yeah adrenaline definitely takes its toll over time especially it can be a temporary soother of course It's corrosive though, especially when we're relying on frequent surges of it. Adrenaline surges are part of an emergency system that's meant to keep us alive in crisis situations, but repeated surges of adrenaline in the brain, not to mention in the rest of the body, are not sustainable because the wear and tear will slow us down through weight gain, emotional instability, fatigue, aging, and hair loss. So rather than rely on this emergency adrenaline system day after day, we serve ourselves best by directly addressing the underlying needs and issues that we've just learned about, like the toxic heavy metals and other contaminants in the brain, including MSG, salt, and calcium deposits, deficiencies in our brain's critical resources like glucose that comes from fruit to replenish our glycogen stores and trace mineral salts. The best place to get those are through fruit as well, and then of course celery juice. Brain tissue obstructions, such as calloused tissue in the emotional centers of the brain, those need to be addressed as well. Everything can be healed. And of course, watching out for caffeine exposure early in life. Yeah. And that's really what this book is helping us do, learning how to address these issues. Yeah. that's a good place to stop for part one of addiction, how it all happens, how it works, what causes it, what makes us more susceptible. It's not our fault. And there is something we can do about it if we understand what we're actually addicted to and how and why. So we're empowering ourselves. We're saying no to the toxins in our environment as much as possible and doing what we can to detox ourselves from them, including things like drinking the heavy metal detox smoothie as much as you can. Try to do it every day if you can. Drinking celery juice, any type of fresh juice is gonna be good for you. You really cannot go wrong with it. Lowering the amount of fat in your diet eliminating gluten and dairy and genetically modified foods like corn and soy and canola as much as possible. Just to name a few things that you can do. Yeah, next week we will talk more about addiction, specifically sugar addiction, and a little bit more about genes and addiction, and wrap up the topic of addiction. Yeah it's been good. I think it's very eye-opening for us to really look at all these different sources of adrenaline and understand that adrenaline is at the core of every addiction and understand what that addiction or what that adrenaline is trying to do to compensate in our brain and to address those deficiencies, address those problems in the brain that are causing the brain to beg for this emergency (laughs) substance, right? This adrenaline is supposed to help in an emergency and addictions are emergencies. They really are. So I'm off to drink my heavy metal detox smoothie for the day. Thanks for tuning in to Misdiagnosed. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.